is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Douglas Preston, journalist and author. His background is in natural history and English, and in addition to writing for The New Yorker, National Geographic, and The Atlantic, among others, he writes nonfiction books and suspense novels in partnership with Lincoln Child. His solo titles include The Monster of Florence, Cities of Gold, and Dinosaurs in the Attic. His latest work is called The Lost City of the Monkey God. The book tells the true story of the discovery of an ancient, previously unknown civilization in the Mosquitia area of Honduras. The story is a true adventure that chronicles the first rumors of this civilization dating back to conquistador Hermen Cortez to a current-day archaeological dig. With ancient curses, diseases, deadly animals, and unexplored terrain that hasn't been walked on in 500 years, the lost city of the monkey god provides an account of one of the greatest discoveries of the 21st century. We began our discussion talking about the book's opening, which is a lecture given by the expedition leader about the dangers Preston and the team will face upon entering the jungle. It was interesting. He just basically listed in this very matter-of-fact British way, because he was a a British guy, um, exactly what we might face in the jungle. And he talked about the, first of all, the very deadly snakes, which are everywhere, warned us about them. And then he talked about the insects, the many noxious insects, poisonous insects, the scorpions, uh, the diseases you, they carry, malaria, leishmaniasis, he went on and on. He talked about you know, wild animals, jaguars, and so forth, um, and about how easy it is to get lost in the jungle and the insects that are on you all day long and how your clothes start to rot on your body and how you, you've got to keep washing yourself. You have to go into the river. You have to wash your clothes. You can't just let yourself fester. He went on and on. And as this got more and more outrageous, I was thinking to myself, he's trying to scare everyone. He's just exaggerating. Of course, when we got in there and I realized that everything he said was true and worse, that's when it really caught my attention. You were describing just now this this lecture that Woody gave, and he was in charge of your safety when you were going to look for this lost city. And you describe in the book, you know, these these ants that are called bullet ants because it feels like a bullet when they bite you and these fire fire ants that could cause you to be evacuated and these these parasites and sand flies and all these scorpions. But the most compelling to me was this fertilance, this this yellow bearded pit viper. Can you tell me some of the things that this pit viper is capable of? Well, it's the deadliest snake in the New World, kills more people than any other snake. And the reason is, first, it's not, um, first of it's very common. It's all over the place. Secondly, it's extremely aggressive. You know, I live in, in the Southwest where we, I've run into rattlesnakes dozens and dozens of times. And the fact is that a rattlesnake just wants to get the hell away from you. They're terrified. And the only time they're going to bite you is if they somehow feel trapped or if you actually step on it. That's not true of a ferdolance. A ferdolance will become agitated and attack you. And after he's bitten you, he'll come after you and bite you again. He'll chase you down and bite you again, which is really serious because 
the Ferdolance, the toxin, is about a thousand times more poisonous than a rattlesnake. I mean, it's, it's like being bitten by a rattlesnake a hundred times or something. It's just, it's really deadly. And if it doesn't kill you immediately through a brain hemorrhage, there's a necrotic aspect to the poison which causes your flesh to rot and fall off your bones. And it sometimes means that the limb that was bitten has to be amputated. After being given a lecture like this, you have to really want to go somewhere to hear all this. And so I'm just curious about what did you know about this white city? What were the rumors you knew? What were the legends that were worthy of follow-up for you to go? Well, there, there, there are three levels to that. The first is that these legends had stretched back 500 years to the time of Cortez about this great civilization, this remarkable city somewhere in the mountains of eastern Honduras. And it was sometimes called the White City, La Ciudad Blanca, or the Lost City of the Monkey God. And the area remained unexplored until the 20th century, until finally um, some archaeologists went in there, some adventurers, crazy people, obsessives, people looking for gold and so forth. And they heard these stories from the indigenous people. The stories became kind of a part of the Honduran national psyche, sort of like El Dorado is part of the Colombian national psyche, you know, the story of El Dorado, the gilded man. Well, the same is true of the white city in Honduras. And it was entirely possible that a city could exist in this area because in the Mesquitia Mountains, it's tens of thousands of square miles of mountains in which the thickest jungle in the world lies on top of these incredible mountain ranges. And in the interior of these mountains are valleys which have never been scientifically explored. And people just can't get into them. It's, it's too dangerous. It's, it's just, in every way, in a very difficult place to get into. So these rumors never died. They continued to flow. And about 20 years ago, a guy named Steve Elkins, who was a filmmaker, decided, heard about these legends and decided he was going to be the man to find the lost city of the monkey god and film it and film the discovery. So I heard about his search and that's how I got into the story about 20 years ago. Steve spent about 12 to 15 years involved in completely failed, fruitless efforts to find the city. And he finally gave up. And I figured, well, that's the end of it. And then he heard about this technology called LIDAR, which can actually see through the thickest jungle foliage and map what's on the ground. And that's when he got all excited all over again and decided to explore three unexplored valleys in these mountains to survey them with a system to see if there was anything there. And basically what you had heard was it was kind of like this abandoned city of gold with gold plates and human sacrifices and that sort of thing. Yes, exactly, in that they worshipped a monkey, a huge statue of a monkey god on top of a pyramid where they made sacrifices and so forth. I mean, some of this was, these are indigenous stories that have become conflated with Spanish legends of gold that have also become conflated with sort of adventurer, Anglo-adventurer legends um, of the kind that, you you know, H. Ryder Haggard wrote about. Uh, so it, the, the legend sort of became this crazy amalgam of ideas and, and currents. And it was hard to know well, what was real, what's real, and what's uh, just made up. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Douglas Preston, author of the nonfiction book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. Because it's so dangerous, you had this guy, Woody, who was helping you on the ground, but you also had a had a fixer, and your fixer was quite a character. Can you talk about why you needed a fixer in Honduras to get this expedition done when you had the permits anyway, and a little bit about who this fixer was? Fixer was a fellow named Bruce Heineke, and he was this big fat guy, gold chains, pinky rings, you know, Hawaiian shirts cigarette and a beer, always in hand, and a very rough-talking fellow. He was a guy who would get things done in Honduras, and he would get them done in what you might consider to be the worst way possible, which is through threatening violence, through bribes, not for our group, but he did murder people. He was, in fact, a smuggler for one of the Colombian drug cartels. He was caught by the DEA, and uh, they said to him, Bruce, you're going to work for us now, or you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. So Bruce went to work for the DEA, except he didn't. He continued to play a double game. He went to his the Colombian boss that he was working for, and he said, hey, the DEA picked me up and want me to work for them. And in order to show them that I'm cooperating, I have to turn over some of your guys. Which guys do you want me to turn over? And the Colombian said, okay, you can turn over these, these five guys. So the DEA picked up these guys and thought Bruce was working for them, when in fact Bruce was still working for the Colombians. He looted archaeological sites, you know, went on gold prospecting expeditions up the Patuca River where he killed people. I, I had a chance to sit down with him and interview him for hours and hours. And at the end of each interview, he'd jab his finger at me and say, you can't print any of this stuff until I'm dead. You understand? And a year later, he died. And so now it's all printed in my book. <laughs> all these crazy stories. Can you tell a little bit of the history of prior expeditions? So basically, you're, you were talking about Steve Elkins and his 20-year search. And part of the information he used on the search were, were these old journals and handwritten maps. Because it's hard, it's hard to even put into words, I guess, how vast this jungle is and, and looking for this small pinprick in this very lush forest. So how did he even begin to pinpoint where this place was? Well, for most of the 20th century, people have been looking for this lost city and desperately looking. And, and not just crazy adventurers either, but actually legitimate archaeologists, a number of legitimate archaeologists looked for this city thinking that it was real. Um, in fact, most Maya cities were discovered by archaeologists because they heard rumors in a bar, someone talking about a, a city in the jungle, and they got taken there by, you know, an indigenous person. So, so Steve, you know, looked at all these previous expeditions, and some of them were really quite crazy. For example, the Museum of the American Indian, which is now part of the Smithsonian, they sent four expeditions into Mosquitia looking for this lost city of the monkey god, 
uh, the first three came back out with not having found the lost city, but with lots of artifacts and amazing stories about it. Finally, in 1940, they sent a guy in named Theodore Mord, uh, who disappeared into the jungle for five months, and he came back out, and he cabled the New York Times, City of Monkey God Located. And he came back to New York with a boatload of artifacts, a tremendous fanfare. Everyone was excited about this lost city. He became a celebrity. And then World War II broke out, so he was never able to return to excavate it, as he promised to do. And then, after the war, he committed suicide. But he never revealed the location of the city he found. And he claimed it was because he was afraid of looting, which is a very legitimate complaint. Now, in my book, through a completely crazy series of coincidences and fortuitous uh, accidents, I got my hands on Theodore Mord's journals. And no one else had ever had access to the full journals before. And I read them, and I mapped his journey, and I was absolutely flabbergasted by what I found, that Theodore Mord had no interest in finding a lost city. That was, that was bull. That was a con job. He conned the Museum of the American Indian out of financing his expedition. He had another goal in mind, and that was he was looking for gold. And he didn't go anywhere near where he said he'd gone when he came back out of the jungle. He was 50 miles away. That was one of the discoveries that I made while I was writing the book, was that this guy, Mord, was a complete fraud. So when you first went into the jungle, as you said, you went in in helicopters. They were able to clear a place to land. And I've seen you have some pictures in your book where you can see, like, your campsite, how dense the trees are. You could literally have have been backpacking there before and never knew that what was underneath the ground. So can you just describe the jungle and your travel in it? It was a strange thing. When we landed in the jungle, they had dropped soldiers and macheted out a small clearing. Helicopter dropped in, and we set up our camp in this huge virgin forest. I mean, some of the trees, the trunks are 20 feet in diameter, and you couldn't, you couldn't see in the jungle, you couldn't see the tops of any of these trees. You felt like you were in a gigantic cathedral where the ceiling was too high to even see. It was lost in the gloom. The other remarkable thing that immediately struck me was that the animals in this valley had never seen people before. They weren't afraid. The animals were wandering into our camp while we were setting up camp. They were um, curious. I was setting up my hammock and in the tree above me, huge tree, these monkeys came down, which I didn't know were up there at first. They came down and they were spider monkeys. And they were very upset that I was there invading their territory. And they were hanging from branches by their tails and shaking branches at me and screeching and trying to get me to move. And then when I didn't move, uh, they all lined up on a branch above me, maybe six or seven or eight of them all eating what looked like popcorn and staring at me, looking at just fascinated, watching my every move for, for hours. And moving was difficult, wasn't it? Like it could take 10 hours to go two or three miles? Yes, every step of the way had to be one with a machete. And the jungle was so dense that our machetes, we, had, we, we taped, you know, pink day glow tape to our machetes so that as we were 
cutting with them, we wouldn't cut off one of our neighbor's hands because you couldn't even see people next to you. To get up to the base of the pyramid in this lost city, we had to use ropes. And at the base of that was a, a mud, kind of like a, a river of mud, which looked like you could wade through it. But once you got in it, you realized you were sinking and it was really quick mud. And that's a very disconcerting feeling. We actually almost lost our anthropologist in that pool of quick mud. Two SAS guys jumped in and, you know, had to wrestle her out of the mud. It was really, they were going down too, but they somehow knew how to deal with it. But they got her out. And you're constantly on the lookout for these ants that are, these red ants that are crawling on branches and leaves above you. And if you just tap the, the branch, the ants fall down on you like rain down your neck. And they bite you and they have a toxin that would you know, immediately means you have to be evacuated by helicopter. So you're, you're always looking at what you're try- touching. And you're looking for snakes, too, because the ferdolances are often the little ones are in the trees. And if you shake the branch, they'll fall down on you and bite you. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Douglas Preston, author of the nonfiction book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. Can you talk about what you found? It was, first of all, walking into this lost city, being the first people in there in 500 years, was a grave disappointment because we couldn't see anything. I mean, you're standing in the jungle and you were just looking at leaves. Now, we had archaeologists with us who had GPS units, which had like a little tiny screens on them. And these screens had the LIDAR maps and indicated where we were. So the archaeologist would say, there's a pyramid right there, 30 feet away. And we couldn't see it. And so we'd walk 30 feet, and we'd practically have to collide with the pyramid, bump our heads off it, in order to see what, that it was there. The jungle was so thick that if you put this jungle down in Times Square and stood in the middle of it, you would not be able to see any of the buildings around you. You would have, actually have no idea you were in a city. And the assumption is um, that this is pre-Mayan. That's a really good question because they don't really know what the relationship was of these people with the Maya. The Maya were just to the west. Copan is, is 200 miles to the west. And this civilization, um, Copan collapsed in 900 AD. It's one of those great mysteries in archaeology. Why did the Maya realm collapse? But Copan collapsed in 900 AD, and after Copan collapsed, this city that we discovered suddenly had a flowering of culture, and they, they had a huge population influx. They started building pyramids and laying out their cities like the Maya to a certain extent, and they also started playing the Maya ball game, you know, that famous game where the, the losing team sometimes uh, were decapitated. Um, which is really a religious uh, ceremony, not a game. But anyway, so, so the, the, the question that archaeologists are asking is, well, what was the relationship between these people and the Maya? Did, were they partners or did they, did they have conflicts? Were they involved in trade? It seems that they were involved in trade because of especially ch- cacao or chocolate because cacao is sacred to the Maya and this area is, is rich in chocolate trees. Wild cacao trees grow everywhere. I mean, some of the finest organic 
wild chocolate in the world comes from, you know, in this jungle. So certainly the Maya were trading with them, but somehow a lot of aspects of Maya culture spilled over into this culture, even though they weren't themselves Maya. And it seemed like in the book from the people that you talked to that this was a culture of sort of lords and serfs. I mean, you had the, the, the wealthy people who seemed to be in tune with the gods and had power over the workers and that, that, that it, it was a very wealthy, at least at some point, civilization. Yes. And one of the interesting and probably most likely theories of the Maya collapse was that the upper classes, the elite classes, um, grew in size. You know, each, they had kids, and their kids had kids. And there's this gross expansion of the elite classes, uh, much like we see today in Saudi Arabia, there are now 15,000 princes and princesses of the House of Saud, you know, most of whom are living a parasitic lifestyle. Um, I mean parasitic on, in the fact that they don't do any productive work themselves. And the same thing appears to have happened with the Maya, where this large elite ruling or noble class grew and grew and grew and became increasingly parasitic on, the, on society. They took more and more resources, but didn't really produce anything themselves. And the working classes supporting them became poorer and sicker and, and much less willing to, to uphold the social order until a certain point, the whole system collapsed. And there was violence. Um, there, the probably many of these elite rulers were killed. Um, their, their palaces were burned. And but the entire st- structure of the society collapsed so thoroughly that you know, in, in two or three hundred years, nobody was left living in this rich valley. These rich valleys, all the cities were abandoned. So I mean, you know, I, I mention these things because. Archaeology does contain uh, stories um, that have relevance today, if only we would uh, see them. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Douglas Preston, author of the nonfiction book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. One, one of the interesting things about this lost city that was involved with a lot of the rumors about it um, from the time of Cortez onward, was that there was a curse uh, there, like a curse of the monkey god, that something did ha- bad happen, and and the people all left or died or evacuated somehow, and that if you went in, you would experience a curse. Can you talk about this and then maybe the sort of curse that happened to your group? Yes, well, you know, being scientists, we completely dismissed any idea of curses is, you know, of course, every lost city has a curse, right? Well, it turns out we were foolish to do so because legends are often based in the truth. And this legend of the lost city being cursed, and the curse is something like this, that that anyone who dares enter the lost city will fall ill and die. Well, it turns out that the valley that we were in, where these ruins were, was a hot zone of disease of unprecedented virulence. So it seems like that the legend was actually based on the truth, on something real. And unfortunately, 
despite all our precautions, uh, two-thirds of the expedition um, got this disease, which is incurable and quite horrible. It's called mucocutaneous leishmaniasis. And, and it was, you know, Americans got it, the Hondurans with us got it, the Brits got it. It spared nobody. Um, well, two-thirds of the people got it. So, it, but it was it cut across all all boundaries, and uh, it was it's really awful disease. You know, when we got out of the jungle, I'll never forget sitting around the pool with Steve Elkins, and he was mopping his brow and saying, "Thank God, we got all got out of there alive, and nobody got sick, and nobody died." Well, his relief was premature. And it, and this was basically a, a parasite that is so bad and doesn't have a lot of treatment options or research in America that you all had to go to the NIH to these super, super specialists who only really take cases on as research. That's right. We all became a research project. We were very uh, interesting to the doctors. We were very popular with them. Um, They were fascinated with this idea that this valley was a hot zone like this. I mean, and the NIH is doing, is the leading institution in the world doing research on this disease. So they were very interested in studying and treating us. It's a very interesting disease. It's a, it's a like leprosy. It's a parasite that uh, eats your flesh, essentially. And it migrates to your nose and lips and basically uh, causes your nose and lips to fall off. But, of course, we're, we're getting treatment, so we're not going to reach that point. It's just incurable. That's the problem. You, you can't get rid of it. It's a bit like herpes or even like chickenpox where, um, you know, years later, chickenpox can come back as shingles. So where does the white city stand now, meaning what is physically exposed right now to, to the elements? What is its fate and what does it look like? The area is being guarded by Honduran soldiers. You know, they're really concerned. The Honduran president is very interested in this whole thing. Um, he's really excited because he feels that this is part of Honduran's, you know, uh, history. It's, it's you know, can tell them who they are. I mean, this is very important for Honduran national identity um, to, to learn about their pre-Columbian past. So the president, you know, he put troops in there to guard the area. Um, but they're smart enough to realize that clearing the whole ruins and opening it all up and bringing in mass tourism would ruin the the whole feeling of it and would also destroy what is an incredibly sensitive ecological area because this this is some of the last absolutely untouched jungle wilderness left in the world not even not even with indigenous use um, it's so remote and they recognize that it has to be preserved like this so essentially I don't think they're going to really do much more than excavate those 200 square feet um, I think they're pretty much going to leave things as they are. And if they do any tourism at all, it'll be extremely high-end tourism where, you know, you pay 25000 bucks and you get a helicopter ride into the valley and you get to look around a little bit. The basic problem with any kind of tourism is that the, is that the valley is still a hot zone. And you can't get rid of that. Uh, the leishmaniasis is a very complex disease that is transmitted by the bites of sand flies, but there's a host animal in the valley and they don't know what that host is that is a reservoir for the disease it could be rats mice but it could be tapers even monkeys so they they just don't know so they don't really have any way of 
of protecting people against that disease who go into the valley. So do you think you'll ever go back? Well, I think so. You know, something interesting that I'll just mention that hasn't really reached the papers yet, but Conservation International, which is a very major um, organization for, you know, conservation in the world, sent 14 biologists into the valley who were absolutely stunned by the by what they found. And these are rainforest biologists. I mean, one of the one of them was said he was just weeping. He had never he thought he'd never see anything like this again in his life, ever, ever in his life. But um, they found a species of bat which only lives in deep caves. And these people, we do know that this that this culture buried their dead in caves. They did not like to bury them in the ground. And so Somewhere in the vicinity are caves, probably the necropolis of this culture, probably full of grave goods, burials, and maybe even gold objects, because there was a lot of gold in this area. Something really amazing. And so if they find that necropolis, I'll definitely go back, because <laughs> I'd love to see that. You know, you're, you're a magazine writer, but there was this perfect storm going on, I think, for you to, to turn this into a book from the false legends of, of these men who lied to your sicknesses to just the dangers and the allure of this place to the politics. When did you know that you had a book? You know, it's funny. That, 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 I like that question because for a long time I was saying, I'm not going to write a book about this. I'm just not going to write a book. I've got other things I'm doing. And then when I got sick with leishmaniasis, I said, you know, I think somebody's telling me something. <laughs> They're saying, you've got to write a book about this. You know, I, somehow getting sick and realizing, wow, you know, I've got this disease that, that's never, it's gonna, I'm going to have it for the rest of my life and be dealing with it. I thought, you know, as a journalist, you have the chance to turn something, when something bad happens to you, you have the chance to, to turn it into something good by writing about it. And so that's when I said, I'm going to write a book. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Douglas Preston, author of the nonfiction book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Well, I, I will. I have, uh, I have it right here. And uh, this it's one of my favorite passages I just love it. I read this when I was a kid, and I must have read it 20 times since. I'm not going to tell you up front what it's from. You'll probably recognize it by the end. But um, this was a lofty chamber lined and littered with countless bottles. Broad, low tables were scattered about, which bristled with retorts, test tubes, and little Bunsen lamps with their blue flickering flames. There was only one student in the room who was bending over a distant table absorbed in, absorbed in his work. At the sound of our steps, he glanced round and sprang to his feet with a cry of pleasure. I found it! I found it! He shouted to my companion, running towards us with a test tube in his hand. I have found a reagent which is precipitated by hemoglobin and nothing else. Had he discovered a gold mine, greater delight could not have shone upon his features. Dr. Watson, 
Mr. Sherlock Holmes,' said Stamford, introducing us. "'How are you?' he said cordially, gripping my hand with a strength for which I should hardly have given him credit. "'You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive.' "'How on earth did you know that?' I asked in astonishment. "'Never mind,' said he, chuckling to himself. So that's the passage. And, of course, that was the meeting of Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. And why did you choose that? I just found those Sherlock Holmes stories to be the most fantastic adventure of my life, of my reading life up to that, up to that moment. You know, from the, from the stories to the Hound of the Baskervilles and everything else. And I just love the character of Sherlock Holmes, who was such a, a droll mixture of, of excitement and passion and, and lethargy and, and uh, cynicism. I mean, he was just a wonderful mixture of those things. Anyway, so a lot of my work, especially my fiction, um, is sort of, I think, springs out of some of those Sherlock Holmes stories. And can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was challenging to write or changed a lot from the first draft. You know, this is this is from the uh, Lost City of the Monkey God, and it's a passage that I, I really worked on a lot, and I, I feel like I still maybe are failing. I'm failing at it, you know. It's sometimes some things are, are almost beyond a writer's ability to describe. But anyway, I'll let your listeners decide whether I've, I've succeeded or failed at this, but um, it... It was the first time we flew over the valley of T1, and I was in the plane doing the LIDAR survey. I'm looking out the window down into this jungle, and I'm trying to describe what I'm seeing. Through it all, I peered out the window transfixed. I can scarcely find words to describe the opulence of the rainforest that unrolled below us. The tree crowns were packed together like puffballs, displaying every possible hue, tint, and shade of green. Chartreuse, emerald, lime, aquamarine, teal, bottle, glaucus, asparagus, olive, celadon, jade, malachite. Mere words are inadequate to, to express the chromatic infinities. Here and there, the canopy was disrupted by a treetop smothered in enormous purple blossoms. Along the central valley floor, the heavy jungle gave way to lush meadows, Two meandering streams glittered in the sunlight where they joined before flowing out of the notch. We were flying above a primeval Eden, looking for a lost city, using advanced technology to shoot billions of laser beams into a jungle that no human beings had entered for perhaps 500 years, a 21st century assault on an ancient mystery. So that's the passage that I, I labored over and... Not sure I succeeded in really describing how the richness of the jungle, but there it is. Where do you write? Well, in Maine, I write in a little shack in the woods. And in Santa Fe, I have an office downtown that I go to, and I'm pretty much a nine-to-fiver, in a sense. I walk, I walk to work. I, my commute is a walk, and then I work from nine-to-five, and then I walk home. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, in Santa Fe, uh, behind uh, my house, there's a mountain. We're right up against the National Forest. And uh, it's called Picacho Peak, and I climb that mountain. It's uh, about a 3.6-mile round trip and a 1,300-foot vertical. 
So it's not a big climb, but it, it really gets me going. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a writing partner on my novels named Lincoln Child. We write novels together under the Preston and Child, uh, you know, byline. And so I'll show, I'll show my stuff to him because I know that he's going to tell me the truth. And if it stinks, he's going to say, Doug, it stinks. And if I show it to my wife, she doesn't want to criticize me. And she doesn't really want to be a partner in my work. She's got her own work to do. And, you know, I can't show it to my mother because she'd think it was the most wonderful thing that had ever been written since War and Peace. So really, Lincoln is the only person who can give me the kind of frank advice I need. And how have you dealt with rejection? That's a very important thing because every writer is rejected multiple times. And what I make sure is that I'm working on something else. So if I submit something, I immediately get to work on something else. So when the rejection comes, I can say to myself, oh, well, maybe that didn't work, but this is going to work. And what is your favorite word? You know, I have so many favorite words. I think my favorite word is in a, in a language that isn't English. It's the Italian word furbo, which means clever in a nasty sort of way. A person who is furbo. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Douglas Preston, author of the nonfiction book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.